Hey guys, welcome back to another week of Rocky Mountain Surgery. This is Jason. And this is Allie. This week we have an episode where we talk about the chief resident surgical experience. We got some great interviews with two of our chief residents, as well as the chairman of surgery at Denver Health, Dr. Mitch Cohen. But first, Allie, done anything fun lately? Well, as you know, Jason, since you were with me, and we saw some very nice local jazz this past weekend and ate some delicious Ethiopian food. All right, so moving into this episode regarding your chief year in residency, you know, one of the things that we thought was important was highlighting what types of things you take away from your chief year of residency and in the context of people doing different things after they graduate. So up on this episode, we have Dr. Nicole Christian, who you guys may remember from a previous episode where we talked about interviewing, who is doing a breast surgical oncology fellowship at Sloan Kettering in New York next year. And then we also have Doug Hurth, who's doing general surgery practice in the Western Slope of Colorado next year. So kind of coming into their chief year with different things on the horizon. So both great episodes. And then we also interviewed Dr. Cohen because his service at Denver Health is one of the services that is staffed by a chief resident and a full kind of team. Uh, So we wanted to see what it's like being the shepherd of chief residents, if you will, over there. Absolutely. So why don't we start with listening to Dr. Cohen's interview first. Again, he is the chair of surgery at Denver Health, our county hospital, which we discussed in our last episode. He's a lot of great advice for chief residents both in being a successful resident, also in developing a successful academic surgical career. So let's listen to that now. All right, we have Dr. Mitch Cohen here. He is the chair of surgery at Denver Health Medical Center and the professor and vice chair of surgery at the University of Colorado. Dr. Cohen received his medical degree from Mount Sinai School of Medicine in New York, and he completed a surgical residency at Rush University in Chicago. He then completed a trauma and acute care fellowship at the University of California, San Francisco. And he is a trauma surgeon by practice and also has an exceedingly impressive academic and research resume. Dr. Cohen joined the department here in August of 2016. Dr. Cohen, thanks for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me. So I think to start, uh, since you're new, somewhat new to our department, I'm sure there were job opportunities uh, that were unique coming in, but what were some of the other aspects of Denver and Denver Health that attracted you here? Well, you know, I wasn't uh, looking to uh, move out of San Francisco. I was happily in the middle of a career there. I had been there for 14-ish years uh, at UCSF, and but the opportunity to come to Denver Health and Denver General and the University of Colorado was a job offer I couldn't refuse. This place has a world-class legacy uh, as being one of the best, if not the best, trauma centers in the world and an academic legacy that is second to none. I've collaborated with this group from afar for many, many years on multiple NIH and DOD grants. And so the opportunity to come and lead this group and join this group was uh, uh, a little too good to uh, turn down. The other... um, Dirty little secret is that I dropped out of an MD-PhD program in New York in the early 90s to move to Telluride to be a fly fishing guide uh, (laughs) for several years. And so uh, my my joke is that uh, and then went back to medical school. And uh, so I've been slowly working my way back out west ever since. So (laughs) it, it took me like 30 years to get back here, but I managed to make it. One of the questions that we ask everybody who comes on the show, Dr. Cohen, is 
what about the field of surgery attracted you? How did you find yourself as a trauma surgeon here today? Well, that's a good question. You know, I, um, like most people, like the immediacy of uh, and the ability to care for a patient and make an intervention uh, and know whether that intervention works and move on to plan B or C or D. I like the combination of hand skill and good physiology and biologic science uh, and really being the complete doctor for the patient. You know, I grew up and went to medical school uh, during the middle of the initial AIDS crisis in New York. Uh, mm -hmm. And, you know, I was going to be an ID doc and take care of AIDS patients because we had whole medicine services and wards with active AIDS patients uh, that we took care of. And that's, you know, sort of everyone's frame of reference. And it wasn't until I got to my surgery rotation, even though I knew that I liked it and I knew that I liked trauma and I'd been an EMT before, but it wasn't until I got to surgery that I realized that that, you know, being that complete doctor, being able to take care of all the patient's problems, whether they be medical or surgical, and really do something about acute issues, that's surgery. That's not medicine, you mm -hmm. know, and so that's what uh, brought me into it. And then I've always liked trauma. I like the combination of really advanced physiology, perturbed biology, and, you know, making huge decisions with poor and minimal information hmm. and being able to MacGyver your way to multiple situations, take care of a patient. Uh, I like that mindset and I like that thought process. So this episode is going to focus on the, the chief experience, the chief surgical resident experience at Denver Health. So what are some attributes that you look for in a successful chief resident, either in the operating room or on rounds or even outside the hospital when it comes to academic research, things like that? Yeah, you know, I think by the time someone gets to be a senior and then a chief resident, you know, they're really uh, in some sort of finishing school or getting toward a finishing school. You know, the rote techniques of how to throw a stitch, how to do an anastomosis, how to set up a field, they should have already started to learn, how to take care of a patient, do all the scut up to, you know, advanced diagnostic stuff. Um, they've already started to learn. So now it's really sort of coalescing that all into being being a good doctor, not so much being a good surgeon, but just being a good doctor and a good person. Um, and I think that uh, what we try to teach and the person that I've always wanted to become that I learned from my professors when I was younger um, is a combination of diligence, surgical skill, diagnostic thought processing and sort of always thinking both inside the box and outside the box about what's going on in a situation. And that sort of pattern recognition of saying, all right, I've seen this before. I've sat with this patient for enough time to really understand what trajectory they're on and how that trajectory is perturbing based on what I do or don't do. And putting that all together into, you know, essentially being like, you know, trying to become that old, and I use this term affectionately, grizzled old clinician at the bedside who can, you know, mm -hmm. come into a situation and be like, you know what, something is wrong here. I don't know exactly why, but something just doesn't pass the smell test. This doesn't seem right. Uh, I've seen this before and we better get on it and figure it out. And I, I think uh, wanting to be that and being totally diligent about wanting to be that at all times is going to make a good chief resident. Was that for a long-winded no, that was a great answer. You know, one of the things that has become very popular in terms of topics within the field of surgical education is resident autonomy and how to truly bring a resident up through their training program so that by the time they're graduating, they feel comfortable in almost all situations in the operating room. So my question to you is somebody who frequently operates with 
chief resident, surgical residents, um, how do you help them develop that autonomy? How do you gradually release responsibility to them? Yeah, that's a good question, you know, and I think it, it echoes back to that idea of diligence, right? You know, this idea that we believe as surgeons that it is always our problem and that everything is our problem and that we have to do the hard work necessary, whether it's in the OR technically or it's outside the OR intellectually, to figure out what the patient needs and, and give that to the patient. And I think that, you know, it's funny, back before the work hours restrictions, you know, people either came to us diligent or they didn't have that as one of their innate characteristics, and we sort of beat it into them uh, through hours and hours and hours. So if they, so we either uh, they either came that way or we trained it into them. And now we have sort of have less time to do that, but I think it's certainly possible. And I think that that's the first and foremost characteristic of a good chief resident when they come in. In terms of how we give them that autonomy and how they learn to become a surgeon, I'll tell you, it's um, tremendously scary the first time. You don't have someone to ask, you know, hey, you think that's the vein? Um, and you have to figure it out yourself. And the professors that I learned the most from and the places that I learned the most at gave us just enough rope to almost hang ourselves, um, in the, both in the operating room and outside the operating room. And that made us into good doctors. I learned that uh, when we rotated to Cook County Hospital as a resident uh, in Chicago and I think that our residents here at the University of Colorado program learn that at Denver Health. You know, I think it's our obligation to give our chiefs more and more autonomy as they grow up, knowing all the well that we're watching and we're teaching and we are making sure that a patient is never harmed. But you know what? Smart people can sometimes disagree about how the conduct of an operation should go and how the conduct of patient care should go. And if that's safe, then uh, I am all for letting the residents do it, learn from it, integrate it into their training, and they grow that way. So for chief residents who need to have a certain number of teaching cases um, by the time they graduate, what do those cases look like with you? And like, what types of cases are they generally when a chief resident is taking a junior resident through something? Are they parts of larger cases? Yeah, I think it's a little bit of both, right? I mean, I think there's a, a graduated skill set uh, and a lot of what, you know, we as a faculty are doing, and we talk about this amongst ourselves all the time. We're constantly talking about you for whatever it's worth. Don't let it go to your head. <laughs> you know, about who is ready and at what level they are ready, right? And sometimes that is, you know, starting out very with very, very minor, straightforward cases, little lumps and bumps, progressing through hernias, which can be... Um, are often thought of as the intern case, but can be very, very complicated anatomy. Um, uh, and up to, you know, the starting by doing parts of a case and then having us come in to help with the more difficult parts or to guide. And then ultimately, um, with us standing there and watching the chiefs take the more junior residents through the case. I also think that, you know, you learn a ton by uh, that process. Um, you know, you don't really know how to do a case until you can take someone through it. And it's one thing to say, oh yeah, I've done a ton of these big advanced cases, whatever they might be, where, you know, the senior attending was taking you through it and saying, Bovi here, stitch there, Bovi here, stitch there. That's not really doing a case. Really doing a case, so much of it is really understanding the anatomy, how to set up the field, how to set up whatever the next step of the operation is in the conduct of the operation. And you don't learn that, honestly, until you're doing it yourself. 
That's an interesting question. So, you know, as this program is transitioning, I would say transitioning um, into more of an academic research required, research focused place that also is very robust clinically. There are still some people who will graduate from this program, fewer than before, but still some who will graduate and become general surgeons out in the community. And it's our goal, I would say, and you certainly tell me what your goal is, but to turn out people, whether they're going to go to a fellowship or not, who are comfortable in almost all general surgery situations. And so if I'm somebody who's graduating after my chief year and going into, say, rural uh, private practice somewhere as a general surgeon, what are the types of experiences that you think I need to pay particular attention to during my residency? Like what... I'm thinking of a specific senior resident right now who I know is going into private practice somewhere kind of rural. Um, and there were certain things that I think he did during his chief year that I just knew what was going through his mind saying, I'm going to be the person out there on my own next year. I need to really learn how to do a mastectomy and a lymph node dissection well, and I need to know what to do in this certain traumatic case. Um, I don't know, He just to really hone up his skills in general, are there certain things that you see during your chief year that you really need to pay extra special attention to? Because like as the two going through a mastectomy, you are certainly more in awe. Even if you've done all of your reading and you know the steps of the operation, like you aren't thinking of this, I'm going to be doing this on my own next year. I think that there are just certain things that maybe, I don't know if there are specific diseases or specific experiences that you really need to pay close attention to as a senior resident, knowing that you're leaving and you're going to be the person in charge next year. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I think it's um, less specific and more broad, right? Uh -huh. So I, I will say that there is um, nothing substandard or sub-hierarchical, I don't even know what the term might be, to say, oh, you know, someone's, oh, just going into private practice and being a general sure. surgeon. Frankly, like being a, you know, I've worked my entire career in big academic medical centers and public safety net hospitals where we've got layers of backup and great residents and partners and, you know, the best of the best of tertiary and quaternary care. But I've taken some call in smaller rural places where you are the only person in a very small hospital with no backup. Mm -hmm. um, and it is um, scary, you know, and I have tremendous respect for people who are out in the community as the go-to guy or woman sure. uh, for a community. I mean, there is um, no nothing substandard or nothing, you know, that's equally laudable uh, and maybe even more so than the stuff that we do, you know, at the big famous Denver Health and University of Colorado. That said, what do you need to be that surgeon? I, honestly, I think you need to, I don't think it's different if you want to go into rural general surgery, you want to be a hyper subspecialized hmm. whatever. I think you need to put that all in your memory bank and your training and every opportunity you have during your surgical training you need to glom onto. Do every case, take care of every patient. It's all pattern recognition, right? The old grizzled guy or woman at the bedside who can just smell it when, when it's wrong and knows what to do. They got there by doing machine learning pattern recognition for 30 years at the bedside and just mm -hmm. putting that in their, in their bank. Um, and technically, I think, you know, I don't do cosmetic plastic surgery. I don't do, I do open hearts for trauma, but I don't do cabbages. I don't sew vessels in that way. 
But the fact that as a resident and as a fellow, I scrubbed on those cases means that I understood how those specialties set up their field, handled their tissue, the little tricks that make me better the next time I'm operating on the heart, the next time I'm doing some big skin or soft tissue thing, the next time I'm operating in, you know, tiger country around the liver. Um, the fact that I've been there before makes me better. And so, yeah, you have to know how to do the operation start to finish because you're not going to be a vascular surgeon. You might have to do a mastectomy one day and a carotid the next and a, mm -hmm. you know, lap coli the third. But you can't ever, ever, ever in your training, in my opinion, say, well, yeah, I'm not going to do that in my career. So this is not as important. I'm not going to scrub those cases. Um, it makes you better. Doing everything makes you better no matter whether you specialize or you don't. So Cheryl Sandberg, say yes, is what you're saying. <laughs> uh, yes, is that what she said? Absolutely. I'll, <laughs> I, I, I believe you, and I'll go there. All right, so we're going we're gonna to shift gears a little bit. So you have, as we mentioned, a very successful research career in addition to your uh, career as a trauma surgeon. And one thing I've always wondered, you don't necessarily see the path in front of you when it comes to developing a, a lab or developing your research repertoire. What are some of the steps as early as when you're a chief resident or even before that we should be thinking about when it comes to beginning that process of developing your own lab or advancing your research career in addition to your developing your trauma skills or your surgical skills? Yeah, well, it's a good question. You, you know, there are two things that are important in there. And one was from the previous question about, you know, what makes, what do you need to put in your bank while you do your training? whether you're going to be a specialist or you're going to be a community surgeon or whatever you might go into. Um, I think, honestly, the academic thought process, that makes a good chief resident, makes a good surgeon, whether you end up being an investigator later in your career or not. Um, I think that thought process of thinking academically about a problem, whether it's an academic problem or a clinical problem, is absolutely essential. And so I think that the two additional research years that are done here at the University of Colorado by everyone are incredibly valuable, whether you want to become an NIH-funded investigator or you're going to go into private practice or you're going to be a hyper-specialized clinician somewhere. I think that's uh, incredibly important. Now, what you should do to get there, you know, the other thing that I think has um, been incredibly gratifying in my career is um, it is really, really fun to be part of a group uh, that works on a scientific problem that you find interesting, right? Being part of like the intelligentsia or, you know, the go-to group out there uh, and being able to fly around the world uh, and go to really cool places and drink really good wine with other people who find interesting what you find interesting, all toward the, you know, sort of communal goal of getting us one step out of the cave, you know, one step further out of the cave of scientific ignorance. It's like the best thing we've got going. And I think thinking along those lines, while you're a resident and then when you're a fellow and then when you're a junior faculty member, to say, okay, what do I find interesting? What am I good at? What research opportunities are there? And how can I develop and then become part of that national or international group that works on that thing? Is really the thought process. It doesn't matter so much what you start out with. You go work in a lab, you, work, you learn science, the scientific thought process, you learn techniques, um, and people, in my opinion, get way too wigged out about, oh my God, I want to be a pediatric surgeon, but I'm working in a trauma lab or vice versa. Um, I don't think it matters when you are a junior person, but as you start to progress 
and you now know what you're going to go into clinically and know what you're going to go into academically, then you start to focus and you start to find that niche and you start to become a part of the group, a player, part of the intelligentsia of whatever that thing is, and that'll bode you really well in your career. In particular, I tell people as they move toward chief residency and know what they want to do with their lives, and then certainly fellows, you know, the goal of a fellowship oftentimes is not so much to come out with advanced clinical training, although that goes unsaid and will happen, but to come out as with an, an academic niche. So people can say, oh, what does she work on? Oh, yeah, she's the person who's, you know, published that paper and has a grant and works on this thing. She's becoming one of the go-to people. Or, you know, oh, he published that paper and he's part of that group that's investigating whatever. And then you go to the national meetings and the international meetings and you start to get involved in research. And that has been the most gratifying, one of the most gratifying parts of my career is being part of that group. To close out, I think something we're always curious to learn from those who are mentoring us is what were some of the, the leaders that helped mentor themselves and kind of help, what were some of the lessons they learned that helped mold their careers as well? Because those lessons persist regardless of time or location. So what were some significant mentors in your career and what were some of those lessons that you picked up from them over time? Yeah, you know, I think um, if you want to be successful in your career, you get lucky and you get passed from great mentor to great mentor. Like if there's any success that I've had, it has very little to do with me and very much to do with being super lucky and finding the right uh, mentors. And, you know, I don't think even though we are good about assigning mentors and making sure that, you know, and, and being thoughtful about mentorship, I, I think the idea of like intentional mentorship of assigning someone that works out initially, but then it needs to be more organic after that. And you need to find the people who you want to be and who you want to emulate and glom on to them. Uh, one of the beauties of uh, being here at the University of Colorado is we've got a deep bench, a deep and broad bench of whatever you want to be. There is someone here who is the world's expert at that, you know, the best clinician, the best hyper-specialized clinician, the best investigator in, you know, a gajillion different areas. And, you know, our, it's incumbent upon us at Denver Health and the University of Colorado to say, oh, you know what, you need to meet him or you need to meet her and you need to go work in that group. Mm -hmm. And that's how it happens. I mean, I, you know, I think you just find the people that you want to be. It started with me. I remember the first day of my internship quite literally showing up on July 1, and my second year resident, who was a total catastrophe in everything to do with his life, you know, completely disorganized, disheveled, just a utter disaster, but was frankly like the best resident I've ever seen in terms of <laughs> being super diligent and getting stuff done. And I was like, oh, my God, I want to be that guy. Right. So how do I do that? And then as I progressed, uh, found some clinicians who took me under their wing and in particular some trauma people at Cook County in Chicago who took me under their wing. And then I got really, really lucky during my lab years to work with a luminary in our field who passed me, who was one of my mentors and then passed me to one of his other mentors in fellowship and on and on it went. Um, and I think that, you know, figuring out, oh, you know, I want to be her or I want to be him uh, and then climbing onto those people, that's the way you do it. I think it's a great point. My colleague in the lab, Julie, and I have been thinking about this. I'm sure all of research residents have started thinking about mentorship and where they want to go and who they should be looking for. And you're, you're absolutely right. It does happen organically. And it's it's not a 
one time event process. It's actually fairly organic, like you're describing, which I think is very interesting in that it actually it can transition over time where you're under the arm of one mentor at one point and at another time you're under the arm of another mentor. And that's all just part of this process of developing as an academic surgeon. So I really found that our answer very interesting. Yeah. And, you know, those mentors become uh, your collaborators, right? I mean, I'm not certainly not beyond in my career having mentors that, you know, become collaborators. And one of the cool things about what we do, no matter what specialty we do it in, is that um, there are a lot of people outside surgery that desperately want to work with us. And I have a ton of doing the kind of coagulation research and in particular the sort of big me big data precision medicine research, I have lots and lots of these relationships that just got fostered, frankly, by finding, you know, big name people in the field that knew nothing about what we did and calling them up. And they become these synergistic relationships where both halves are sure they've got the better end of the deal. I can't believe that they are willing to work with us and they can't believe that they have this wonderfully rich clinical cohort and super interesting question. They think of me as a mentor, and I, which I think is crazy, and I think of them as a mentor and ultimately we're collaborators. And it's like being a kid in a candy store. So um, I think that starts you know, here as a resident and just grows throughout your career. One of the things that you said that I would echo for any medical students who are listening and interested in mentorship within the field of surgery is that you said, you know, honestly, find somebody who is excited about something and shows interest in you and is a good good mentor and doesn't necessarily need to be the specific type of surgeon that you think you want to be when you grow up. I think that the most important thing is learning how to become part of the intelligentsia, as you would say, or being introduced into it by somebody like really being taken under somebody's wing is incredibly important and valuable and something that really takes a lot of effort from the mentors part. So if you can find somebody who is interested in providing that for you. I don't think it really matters specifically. It may not even matter if they're a surgeon, but I don't think it matters what field of surgery they're in. It doesn't matter at all. I'll tell you, there's like no greater pleasure in my career than mentoring the next generation and having them become your colleagues. Um, that really is true. That's not hyperbole. And that, you know, these big, scary mentors who are the, you know, world famous directors of this or chairs of that crave people knocking on their door to say, hey, I'm interested in what you're doing. Tell me about it. And how can I work with you? And how can I get involved? And so um, I tell medical students and pre-med students and residents, like, just ask, you know, we um, we're looking for them all the time. And then you get set up in this. And I cannot reiterate that enough. You get passed from mentor to mentor, you know, uh, and you get in this kid in the candy store kind of cycle like, oh, you're interested in that. That's great. I can help you on this. But then you should come to this meeting and meet these five people and you should work on their projects. And it just exponentially grows and continues to grow throughout the career. And But you start that by just knocking on somebody's door. Well, Dr. Cohen, this has been great. We really appreciate your time. We understand you're very busy. And this has been a very enlightening discussion as always. So we really appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you, Dr. Cohen. Next up, let's listen to Doug Hurth, who, as we talked about, will be joining a community general surgery practice in the future. And uh, here's some upcoming words of wisdom from Doug, who I will say has actually been my chief or senior resident for like 
half, it feels like, of my residency. It's funny, you guys who are medical students who are going to become residents, and no matter what field you're in, sometimes you just get paired with the same people within your residency program over and over again, and then sometimes it feels like there are other people in your residency program who you don't work with, um, and it's all just by chance and scheduling. And Doug and I have been together so many times, so you will hear some of his words of wisdom that I'm sure have been directed to me at times. Here with us today is Dr. Doug Hurth, who is one of the PGY-5 general surgery residents who is going into private practice in Grand Junction, Colorado next year. Welcome to the program, Doug. Thank you, Allie and Jason. Thanks for having me. We specifically wanted to talk to you today because both of us have definitely benefited from your chiefly wisdom over the years. I know I said in one of the interludes that I think you and I have worked together for half of my residency thus This is far. true. I think that's right. <laughs> um, <laughs> I've been but, spoiled. Oh, thanks, Doug. Me too. And and that brings us to the next question, or the next reason why we want to have you here, is this is the Chief Resident episode, and we want some tips for you on what it has taken to become a Chief Resident, what you think makes a good Chief Resident, and how this year is going to shape what you do for the rest of your life, which is going to be private practice general surgery. So with that, let's head into some questions. Jason? Uh, so really, just starting off, what is it like being a general surgery resident at our institution? And, uh, you know, what are the services you're on? What are your expectations? Uh, what is your role in the operating room? Things like that. Very broad speaking. Well, I think it depends on your level and which rotations you're on. But really, I think the role for you here is as much as you're willing and able to take, for the most part, uh, with a big spectrum, you know. And... Uh, it's great. We have a good mix here of rotations where you can really take as much rope as you're able to with attendings kind of giving you tips and scrub with you, but you really doing the case. And you get a good mix then. And there's a lot of, we have enough continuity with our surgeons that there's a lot of kind of let me show you how I like to do it. Mm-hmm. And then if you're able to, then you do it the next time around, which is very nice. So, you know, I think that in the operating room, you know, there's a lot of variability, but it's pretty much as much as you can handle. But by the end of your time with someone, you're really doing the cases. They're assisting you. What specific services have you been on this year, and what are the types of cases that you feel like are the chief-level cases that you have done this year? Well, uh, you know, by the end of the time doing Whipples, you're really doing Whipples. We do a lot of Whipples here, so that is fantastic. Um, those are great cases. So that's definitely one of them. You know, I think that with Dr. Gleisner on green, you, with your high pecs, you're really doing a lot of that. She's assisting you with the dissection, which is great. And just so much anatomy on those cases and lots of fun. Just for the medical students who are listening, what you're talking about with high pec are large debulking surgeries for people who have malignancies that have spread to the peritoneum. So you're doing bowel resections, you're doing peritonectomies, you're doing diaphragm resections, like a lot of different parts to that surgery, and then the perfusions at the end. So lots of things. Lots of things, absolutely. And in terms of the more basic cases with our, you know, as a fourth year even, with our, our tax attendings, things like lap, laparoscopic cholecystectomies and appendectomies, even some X-laps, bowel resections, and sometimes 
uh, colectomies even, you know, you and the junior resident are doing the case, uh, you're doing it together, and the attendees kind of scrub sometimes in the medical student position, giving you tips, which is great. And that's not every case. And I think, you know, the the more urgent the case sometimes, the less that is. That's not really happening in trauma patients and hemorrhagic shock quite the same way. Mm-hmm. That's usually the chief resident and the attending going at it. But, um, you know, I think it's great. And then what do you find that you're doing outside, or what do you find your role is outside of the operating room when it comes to the various services you're on as the chief? So I think it depends, one, on, on the management styles, both your own and your attending surgeons, and how much, you know, you see eye to eye and how much you develop a trust. So the more that you work together, you know, the more that you respect each other's judgment, um, and kind of once you as the chief resident, you know, you have to get to the point where you're not just a yes man who just does whatever you think the attending will want. You know, they have your own, you know, they know you have your own style and your own judgment and what you think. But at the same time, you understand what the attending style is and you kind of form some kind of compromise. For example, if someone's very conservative with advancing diets or keeping NG tubes, you understand that and you kind of tailor your management accordingly. And the more your plans in the morning are kind of get the response of, that sounds good, and the occasional, like, have you thought about this or maybe let's do this instead, as opposed to remaking them because it's, you know, off the wall, then the more autonomy you have on the floor. Now, when you were considering residencies, did you know you wanted to go into general surgery and not subspecialize? No, not at all. I was planning to do surgical oncology or vascular surgery. And I was sure I was going to do research and I wanted to have a lab and uh, be, you know, super specialized in academics. And so looking back now, do you feel like going to a large academic center like this hindered you at all uh, when it comes to being able to practice general surgery versus if you had gone to a community practice that would be more reflective of what your practice would be ultimately? Or do you think there's advantages to training at a a facility like this? No, I think it's the opposite, actually. I think there's advantages. You know, the reason I wanted to do general surgery is I just liked too many different areas of surgery. I couldn't imagine not being on call and X-lapping people, you know, for dead bowel or perforations and not doing, you know, endocrine surgery anymore, not doing colorectal surgery, not doing TEPs and, you know, uh, hernia surgery. There's just too many, you know, great things to do. And I think they train us so well at it to then untrain yourself by specializing in just one thing. It was not appealing to me. Uh, So I think kind of the opposite happened. And I think if you do kind of limit the scope of what you learn in training, you're not going to, it's going to be hard to go beyond that. Mm -hmm. I think there's a huge advantage to being taught colorectal surgery by colorectal surgeons and endocrine surgery by endocrine surgeons and liver surgery and hepatobiliary surgery by hepatobiliary surgeons and surgical oncologists. Because you're, you know, by learning from the experts, you learn their tricks. Mm -hmm. You learn the way they set things up, the things that, you know, minimize the struggle and make it look easy. You know, Dr. Schulich makes a Whipple look easy because his exposure is perfect and everything's lined up and everything's done, you know, the same way every time in the correct and ideal way. And that means you can sail through them, Um, you know, whereas if everything's kind of haphazard and it's not something that's been thought out and meticulously planned, it's a very different type of operation. Doug, what was the first case that you took a junior resident through? Do you remember? I do, and it's not going to be terribly exciting. It's probably (laughs) a lipoma at Denver Health. As a three, I remember taking R1s through soft tissue cases uh, pretty routinely. So they they weren't, uh, you know, but it was, it was neat being the <laughs> most senior person in the room. Even if they were lipomas and it was lipomas and sebaceous cysts. It mm-hmm. was on the purple service. 
and Dr. Johnson would let me take the interns through them. And what and, cases are you taking your junior residents through this year? Oh, uh, big change. So, you know, this year I, I have taken a junior resident through a distal pancreatectomy. That's awesome. Um, that happened once. That's not, <laughs> not every day. Yeah, Bradley and I did that. Um, that, w- that was a great case. And then, you know, it, what, what is routine is it basically by the time you're in R4, all the lap appies and lap coles on tax. You're taking the junior residents through. And taxes the uh, trauma, trauma acute, acute care surgery. Exactly. You're doing all of those with the juniors. And then on tax, you know, if you have a good relationship with one of the attendings and they trust you, you know, you can take junior residents through sigmoidectomies. I've done that. And X-laps for bowel resections, a total abdominal colectomy once. So, you know, there's, there's a lot, you know. And what's nice is that the tax attendings, you work with them so much on call throughout your residency and also when you're on their services, it gives you the opportunity you need to really develop, you know, the trust and the relationship uh, that you need, honestly, for operative education. In five months, maybe even fewer, you'll be practicing independently. So the autonomy will be 100% yours. And this is, a, this is an interest at the higher levels of surgical education, whether it's ACGME or the ABS, and how to monitor autonomy and ensure that it's a progressive process through our training. But how did autonomy... Uh, take shape for you through the surgical training. And what I think of is when I was learning to play hockey, you know, I could barely get the puck off the ice when I would shoot. And then one day it just happens. And suddenly you're able to do all the advanced shots that you couldn't do a day before and you don't really know what changed. Is that how it is when it comes to autonomy and surgery where it just kind of happens over time? Or is there more of a progressive process that occurs where you're gaining more and more skills at each layer on top of each other? Well, um, I think that it's pretty. It can be pretty organic. Uh, maybe there is some analogy to the hockey, but I, th- I think the most important thing is that you know I'm sure this was the case when you were playing hockey. Is that you know you fell down a lot and you got back up and you, know, you missed a lot of shots, but you kept well, taking I still them. Fall down a lot. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that's kind of the same thing for residency. That you know every intern should have the perspective that they're a horrible, horrible doctor, <laughs> which is true, and it couldn't be any other way. And you have to be okay with that and, um, you know, understand that you have a lot of work to do and a lot to improve upon and learn how to learn from all your mistakes and the mistakes of others. Learn how to forgive yourself for your mistakes because, uh, you know, you learn what you can and you don't try to only do them once. But, you know, you know, you can't, nobody's perfect and you can't, it's counterproductive to kind of beat yourself up about things too much. You got to just learn what you need to learn and fix them. Um, but I think the biggest challenge we have in surgical education is people being afraid to make mistakes and fail and all that and to hang back because, you know, like nobody starts good in the operating room. No one starts knowing how to take care of these complex things. No one starts with the anatomical knowledge they need or, or any of this stuff. And it's all stuff you develop painstakingly. And sometimes, you know, you ideally learn from the mistakes of others or from the textbook or, you know, from something else. But all the time you learn from your own mistakes, too. And you just have to be willing to not judge yourself and to get everything you can out of it just to keep getting better, you know, and not to be scared of being wrong. You know, it's okay if the people above you are changing your plans all the time, or, you know, you just need to then learn from that. When I was an intern, I remember I, uh, my first month, we had a patient who was hypotensive, had an epidural and, and everybody except for me and the attending thought this was just the, thought this was not the epidural. Something horrible was happening. And I was sure it was just the epidural and we turned out to be right. 
And I thought I was great. I was been a doctor for a few weeks, and the chief was wrong, and mid-level was wrong. I was right. So then I decided, because I knew this stuff so well, I then proceeded to basically discontinue every uh, single epidural in our service. And uh, I also learned that if you call a consulting service and offer them less work, they will always accept. So when I called the <laughs> APS anesthesia resident and offered, maybe we should get rid of all these epidurals, they thought this was the greatest idea in the world. And they held heparin, and they were all gone really quickly because I probably, like, took 10 patients off their list or something ridiculous. <laughs> I got a lot of calls about pain after that. <laughs> <laughs> but, I, you know, I learned a few lessons from it. <laughs> I haven't done that again. Um, so, you know, th- there's going to be stuff like that when you're starting out. And, you know, we still all make mistakes. Um, but you just have to learn from them and, and move forward. And I think that's the biggest thing. I think the people that have trouble progressing are ones that are scared to make mistakes because they don't they, – you should feel uncomfortable a lot. That's how you're getting to the next level. One of the things that I think is tough about, I think this is universal to being a doctor and training, is that we don't get formal education into how to become a leader and how to lead a team. Um, So a lot of it, I think, is gained from your own previous experience and even a lot from your intrinsic personality. How have you, how would you describe your leadership style as leading a team and how have you learned to define that as your own? That's a good question. You know, and I think um, I think a lot of it has to come into there has to be sort of like a, a trade almost or a value for value, you know, where uh, you can't um, people aren't impressed by by titles or, you know, like you'll find any of you that are med students when you become interns, people won't be impressed by you saying you're doctor such and such and you want this. People won't be impressed by saying, you know, you're the chief resident and you want this. They'll be impressed by what you can do, basically and your knowledge and, and how calm you are in a crisis and things like that. So that's really what, you know, kind of let your actions and not any title you have or any vested authority uh, speak in, instead of, you know, the attending wants this done type of thing. Uh, you have to be willing to explain things. You basically want buy-in from everyone that you're leading and trying to, you know, bring on board. For your junior residents and interns, that means you have to give them cases hmm. and you have to teach them stuff. So I make a huge effort to get cases for my junior residents. Like if on my service, if there's not something, I find other services to loan them out to because that keeps them happy. Mm-hmm. Or if we're doing a case together, I have to let them sew on the bell too or else they'll be upset um, and they won't want to work hard. <laughs> but if they're happy and they're getting a lot out of it, then they've, you know, they're, it's human nature. Then they, they want to do a good job. They want to you know, maintain the relationship. And I think the other thing you have to realize, too, and it's not just in residency, it's really forever, is kind of, I think, my wife told me about this when she was at Microsoft, it's this idea of soft power in the sense that, so you want IR to drain an abscess for you. You cannot actually force them to do it. There's nothing you can do to make them do it. You have to make them want to do it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you can't say this needs to be done, what's wrong with you, this is malpractice, you know, this guy's septic. Uh, you have to go down and talk with them and, you know, show up face to face and explain why you need their help. And then they love it. Then they're, you know, they're the heroes coming in to save the day, to bail out surgery. You know, thank God they're around. Like, that's why they get up in the morning, you know. So, you know, and that I find is very effective, actually. And I think we are lucky. We have very good IR people here. But anytime there's been an issue where they kind of didn't think something was necessary, it wasn't explained right, find face to face meeting always helps ease that out. And I think the other thing is that, you know, you have to kind of respect the dignity of everyone you're dealing with, whether it's a nursing staff or 
or anybody and, you know, address their concerns and talk to them. You don't necessarily have to uh, agree with the plans as much as acknowledge, you know, what they're saying and, you know, give them some kind of response. This is something you guys probably know very well from the ICU. Mm. You know, you'll frequently get a plan that, you know, is well-intentioned but actually makes absolutely no sense. And <laughs> you have two options. You could kind of blow the nurse off and they'll hate you and not work effectively with you anymore. Or you can say, you know, well, actually, we're going to do this other thing for the following reasons. But if scenario X, Y, and Z happens, then we'll maybe consider your plan. Thank mm -hmm. you for telling me. And then everyone's happy and, and everything just keeps going. So, like we said, in a couple of months, you'll be operating on your own. And not only will you be in private practice, but you'll be on the Western Slope, which is a decent distance from, you know, your court area tertiary care center. So what's your emotional response to that thought? And then when you're in that center, what are the resources you'll be relying on to be successful? So I think that, you know, I should clarify that I'm going to a level two trauma center. Oh, okay. So I'm, St. Mary's Hospital is actually, uh, it, it, it is kind of everything. It has neurosurgery, it has IR, so everything you need, and I'm joining a big group with a lot of experience and a lot of backup. So I'm not quite going, you know, going to be by myself in that sense that someone who's going to be, you know, the surgeon in a small town is going to be. Uh, but just in terms of, you know, getting out there, and it's exciting. Of course, you know, you get a little nervous at the same time, but you know, this is what we train for. And it, it will be neat to just call the shots. And not need to run it by anybody, mm -hmm. you know. But that said, you know, something that I encourage everyone else that's going to general surgery to do, or really anything, is that when you do start out to, to join a supportive group where you do have resources, senior partners and things like that. And we're very fortunate here, and I've had multiple surgeons in our faculty say, hey, if you have something that you want to mull over or discuss, call me from the OR or whatever, you know, feel free at any time. That's awesome. Because you need that. You need, you know, you're always – there's – no matter how many cases we do, we're always going to see something come through the door. We're on a call sometime that we've never seen before. Mm -hmm. or only read about God knows how long ago. Mm -hmm. So you, need, you always need help. Doug, just for a question for people who are considering doing general surgery in a broad sense, how did you choose the practice that you ended up joining? Like what things were you looking for in a job? So I was looking for somewhere where I'd be busy right away. So the practice I'm joining is extremely busy, and I was looking for somewhere where I would have where my skills would keep developing and not eroding. So I'm going somewhere where there's not really specialists. There's there's vascular surgery, uh, like one pediatric surgeon, but there's not colorectal surgeons. There's not hepatobiliary surgeons. You know, there's not trauma surgeons. So somewhere general surgery still is kind of everything. Um, so I wanted to go somewhere like that, so I wouldn't lose skills and I could you know keep getting better. I wanted to go somewhere where, you know, general surgeons were kind of a meaningful part of the community. Mm -hmm. So somewhere not, you know, as big as we are in Denver. I went, did an elective in Montrose, and I kind of saw what that was like, and it's really, really special and neat. So that was something I was looking for. And with the people I worked with, I was looking for people that I got on with, one, and felt, you know, that these were people I'd want to spend a lot of time with. And then, two, people that were looking that were very collaborative and, and got on with each other. And where, you know, if I'd got a gunshot, you know, zone one hematoma type of thing, they'd be happy to come in and help. Mm -hmm. and, um, and I think that's critical, you know. And somewhere also, and in terms of, you know, more of the financial stuff, I think somewhere where, you know, people are incentivized to work together 
is important. And I think that for those of us that are starting out, it's important. I think there's some danger if, if to go somewhere that's purely eat what you kill, so to speak, or I guess that's kind of a terrible expression, but it means that, you know, you, you make basically what you're able to bill out. Because I think in those scenarios, there's not the same, unfortunately, just from human nature, there's not the same incentive for partners to help each other because mm -hmm. they're almost in competition. Well, Doug, one last question that I have for you. Do you have any specific wisdom for us junior residents who are growing into our chief shoes in the next coming years? Yes, try to make the chief obsolete in a way, in the sense of like the more your plans are, are the plan and the more you can do on your own, the better it will be. The more like consults you see and all that stuff, that helps too. And I'll give you an example. Rashik's my R3 right now, and he did a great job working up this kind of complex consult. He presented it straight to Dr. Vogel. And then Dr. Vogel said, hey, Rashik, do you want to, you know, come back and do the case then? And I thought that was great. So stuff like that, you know, because, you know, I actually had been trying to think about how to negotiate that myself without seeming like I didn't want to do the case. But it was perfect. And that, that type of thing, like the more value you add and the more you help, the more people want to teach you. And, you know, they're going to teach you no matter what. But if you're really out there, you know, doing the work, like taking care of patients and all that, and frankly, the way, you know, you were, Allie, when we were on tax together, then, you know, you create this real sense of, you know, like the person wants to reciprocate. They'll be like, okay, then, you know, I want you to do this case. I want you to do that. You know, that, that's great. So the more autonomy you can take, the more responsibility you can take, the more you make things smooth and, and work well the more you're going to operate and, and the more you're going to get out of that. Well, Doug, this has been great. I really appreciate your time. We know you're busy with a very busy service, but uh, this was incredibly helpful. I think a lot of people are going to get a lot out of this interview, so thank you. Well, thanks for having me, guys. Thank you, Doug. So last but not least, we have Dr. Nicole Christian. She's actually been on our podcast before. She is a soon-to-be graduating chief resident going into a breast fellowship at Memorial Sloan Kettering. She had some more great words of wisdom for our junior residents, our medical students out there as well. So let's take a listen. Welcome back to Rocky Mountain Surgery. Today, we have the honor and the privilege of having one Dr. Nicole Christian back with us on the podcast. Thanks for joining us, Nicole. Thanks for having me back. We invited Nicole back to share some of her chiefly wisdom with us. As you guys know, this episode is talking about some pearls for the chief year and what we can learn from our chief residents. So with that, let's get into some questions. All right, Nicole. So first off, what has been your experience as a chief resident been like? And specifically, like, what other services do you do? What is your role as the chief resident on most teams? Just broadly speaking, what is the job of the chief resident? Yeah, so uh, chief year has been a really wonderful year for the most part. And it really almost feels like, at least at this program, that you're doing a victory lap. You get to do a lot of really fun cases with great attendings and you get a chance to be in charge for the most part. And so, you know, we do a lot of rotations at the university on 
the minimally invasive service and major surgical oncology services and colorectal services. But then we also get to go back to Denver Health and be, you know, the chief resident of the chairman's service and the VA and really take control of these services and rotations that you've been on multiple times over the course of your five or in my case, seven years here as a resident. And so it's a really cool experience. And then, you know, what is the role of the chief resident? That can, that's a, there's a wide variety. There's a lot of kind of uh, differences, I think, depending on the exact service you're on, but in a broad sense, basically you're, you know, in charge. It's your job to make sure that the team is functioning at a high level to take care of the patients, that you know everything that's going on with the patients, that you make decisions about the clinical care for the patients, that you communicate all of those decisions and clinical status with the appropriate attending, that you make sure that your interns and junior residents are doing their job. You have to create the schedule for the week and make sure that all of the clinics and cases are covered. And you've got to make sure that all of the plans have been enacted and that patients are moving in the right direction. And then, of course, you get to do whatever cases you want to do on the team. And for the most part, that means, you know, a lot of the really fun big cases that you've been doing parts of as a second scrub or, you know, you've been doing smaller versions of that case. And then all of a sudden you're there doing the Whipple with the chairman and you feel, you know, really good about the last seven years of your life bringing you to this moment. So quickly, so we may have some pre-med students out there, early medical students. So the way general surgery training works is you typically do five years and the chief year refers to that fifth year. At our program, there's an extra two years of non-clinical research. So you're outside of your clinical duties doing research on a day-to-day basis. So ours is actually seven years, but that's what the chief experience refers to. Certainly, some people are considering maybe doing a fellowship, maybe not doing a fellowship and going right into general surgery practice. What are the advantages and disadvantages of training at an academic surgical center where you have some more advanced cases, whether they're open or laparoscopic versus your day-to-day general surgery type practice? Are there downsides to training at a center like this? And to clarify, you're going into a breast fellowship and will Mm -hmm. there be a specialized breast surgeon? Yeah. So um, I am going to fellowship, but I think I can definitely talk about the experience of being an academic in an academic residency and whether or not that prepares me for general surgery practice. And I think that it does. You know, I think that there are, of course, pros and cons. Um, The big pro, I think, of being in an academic surgical practice is you see this insane breadth of pathology. You know, I have seen more cases of cancers that people say, oh, this is only the second or third case of this I've seen in my career, you know, multiple times a year. And with that, I've already, uh, without having even been on the hepatobiliary service yet this year, uh, during my training, I've done a dozen pancreas cases. I've done a dozen hepatic resections. But the downside of that is recently they updated, the ACGME updated the case log requirements for surgery. So for those of you who don't know, the end of surgical training, there's a requirement for a number of cases and a variety of specific categories that you have to meet minimum case numbers that you're the primary surgeon for. And the one area that I was deficient in was hernias. I've met all of my requirements for esophageal cases, liver cases, pancreas cases, but I 
didn't have enough hernias. And so I've been scrounging around to make sure that I get enough hernia repairs so that I can graduate on time. But I think that if you can do a Whipple, you can do a hernia. And so overall, I wouldn't have traded this experience for anything. Mm -hmm. Nicole, when we talk about being a chief, a lot of that has to do with patient management. But as you were discussing previously, a lot of it has to do with managing a team of providers. So who is generally part of your team in this scenario? Like what groups of residents or APPs are working for your team? Yeah. The team that I'm on right now, I think is pretty reflective of teams in general. There's an intern, a junior resident who in my case is a second year resident, but frequently is a third year resident. And then a one or two PAs who fill a variety of roles, either exclusively outpatient help with clinic or follow-up, or uh, inpatient help, so they, you know, take the pager and help with notes in the inpatient orders so that the intern or other members of the team can be in clinic. And so you that's a pretty, I think, typical team. There are some teams that have more residents than that. There are t- some teams that only have a junior resident and a chief or an intern and a chief. Um, but for the most part, we have an intern, a mid-level resident, a chief resident, and then uh, increasingly one or two uh, nurse practitioners or PAs who help out with a variety of tasks, depending on how exactly the workflow on this specific team at this specific institution works. And so it can be a lot of people to coordinate, especially if you have a big service with many patients, patients that are in the intensive care unit and on the floor, new patients coming in through the operating room that are planned surgeries, new consults that are coming in either from the hospital or through the emergency room, or you know what we think of as quote-unquote, bounce backs, patients who recently had surgery were discharged but are not thriving at home or having a complication and need to come back under our care in the hospital. And so, you know, it's a lot of different moving pieces, and that's one of the challenges of being a chief resident is communicating with not only the entire team but also the attending, consulting services, services like radiology or pathology that you're waiting for their Uh, recommendations or reads of tests that you've gotten, communicating with critical care teams that are helping supervise your patients in the ICU. And, you know, so I think that a high level of social skills surrounding communication is one of the most effective and important personality traits for successful chief residents are ones that can navigate all of these different personalities in, you know, both laterally through the certain the Department of Surgery, but also through various different departments in the hospital and coordinating uh, this level of complex care for all of the patients on your team. How do you learn how to do that? Did you have specific examples that you modeled yourself after or modeled yourself against? Yeah. So, you know, when you spend this much time in the hospital on teams early in training, uh, you get an opportunity to see a lot of different management styles. And, you know, I would absolutely say that there is not one style that you should emulate. You know, it's kind of like an orchestra. Uh, There's all of these really amazing individual instruments for your personality and how you manage things and lead as a chief. And sometimes you turn up the bass section and sometimes you turn up the string section and you really have to And sometimes your specific orchestra may be very weak in one area or another, and so you compensate with other areas. And so I learned a lot of different personality traits and approaches and 
behaviors and skills from all of the chiefs that I've worked with. I was lucky that I had a lot of really amazing chiefs in this program that I learned a lot about and um, a lot about how to be a good team leader, to be a good physician. Um, and then also, you know, there are definitely chiefs whose behaviors weren't ones that I thought were conducive to being a good chief. And so those are behaviors that I have reflected on my propensity to either behave that way or not behave that way and how that can help me. And so, you know, a lot of the kind of main personality strategies that I try to adopt as a chief are kind of gratitude, compassion, and pride. Cause I think that those three personality characteristics develop a calm leadership style that everybody on the team can really get behind. And it makes the team feel appreciated because you're, you know, grateful for the help that they give you. It, holds in that, you know, fundamental reason that we're in medicine, which is compassion and keeps the patient at the center of everything we do. And then pride, because, you know, when we do good work, we should be proud of ourselves and we should feel good about the job that we're doing. And so by combining those three characteristics, that's how I try to focus my leadership style. Although, of course, there are some days that I am more successful than others. (laughs) So one thing I think a lot of us are worried about early in residency or even in medical school is thinking about how am I going to develop the operative skills I need to be a successful surgeon? Because it's not just like you read a textbook and you become a physician when it, when it comes to surgery. These are hands-on skills you have to acquire. So what is the transition like during surgery, during surgical residency to develop this increased autonomy and increased skill set to being a successful surgeon? Yeah. So something that I think was really important was how much I got into the operating room as an intern and an R2. And that can be really hard. And I see our interns and R2s struggling with it because you get told your job is to do the floor work, your job is to be in the ICU. And so that makes it really difficult to time manage your ability, you know, to time manage and do all of your work and still get in the operating room. But really, it's all of that time that I spent in the operating room set me up so that when I was for the first time taking a junior resident through a case that I, you know, was a little bit nervous about because, you know, I had never taken somebody else through a case before. I wasn't worried about, oh, do I know how to, you know, do I know the fundamental techniques? Like I knew the fundamental techniques. So I didn't have to actively think about that. And instead I could actively think about, you know, how to, coach the other resident and make good decisions instead of thinking about these fundamental techniques. And so that was something that I had this aha moment where I was like, oh, that's why all my chief residents were telling me that I should get in the OR all the time. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, it's, there's a wide variety of autonomy, I think, as a chief. And some of it depends on the um, service that you're on in the hospital that you're at. I know that you guys have already covered several of our hospitals like Denver Health and the VA. And at those hospitals, you have this opportunity to be a little bit more autonomous. The patients come in and they want a doctor taking care of them. And so I get to be that doctor. And so there's a little bit more ability to really be in charge. And if you demonstrate to your to the attendings at those institutions that you're competent and capable and good in the operating room, then they will let you you know, take over and do everything and take other 
junior residents through. And, you know, of course, they're available and they're supervising and they're making sure that everything's going well. But I, you know, most of the cases that I've done at Denver Health as a chief resident have been without an attending scrubbing in on the case. That's a little bit different, I think, when you go to a tertiary referral center like our university hospital, because people come into the hospital and they are referred to a specific surgeon. They come in to see this specific doctor for their specific problem. And so it's a little bit harder sometimes, I think, to have that autonomy because uh, there's a lot more personal high stakes for the individual surgeons that we work with there. And sometimes the problems there are a lot more complicated and the surgeries can be a little bit more advanced. And it's more that there's a lot of fellowship trained subspecialties that do very specific narrow things, but do them all the time very well. And so, you know, it's, you learn as much as you can, but you know, the transplant surgeons aren't going to let you do a liver transplant with a junior resident (laughs) when you're on the service. So, but to do anything in a liver transplant, all of those skills, all of those fundamentals, that all comes into play. And so they let, will let you end up doing, you end up doing a lot of sewing because they trust you and know that you are capable of putting the stitch where you need to put it for the patient to have a good outcome. Correct me if I'm wrong, breast fellowships one year, right? Yep, one so, year. So in about 18 months, you'll be more or less practicing independently. Yeah. So what, what does that make you think? What, what are your, what's your response to that, that, uh, that reality? Part of me is like, I am ready. You know, this has been a long, wonderful road, but it really is exciting to feel like 18 months from now, I'm just 18 months from now, you know, I can, the end is in sight and I'm really excited about that. I'm excited to really, really be the one who makes the decisions for the patient, who counsels them, who walks them through their operation, who performs the operation and who sees them afterwards, taking care of them from the beginning to the end of their surgical care. And that's just a really something that I'm really excited about doing. And from a technical stand and decision-making standpoint, you know, I do, I also feel ready. I mean, I am very excited for fellowship. There's so many things about breast cancer and uh, breast disease that I don't know that I will really, you know, have a high value fellowship to be able to learn all of those things. But and get all of the practice that I can for all of the kinds of surgeries I'll be doing. But if I, you know, had not matched a fellowship or had decided to do general surgery, I would have felt very prepared to go out there, see patients in clinic, come up with a good, safe plan, and take them to the operating room to do a wide variety of cases. You know, I don't think I'd be doing esophagectomies my first month as a general surgeon, but I don't think a lot of general surgeons really do esophagectomies their first month out of training, no matter what program they've gone to. And so, you know, I think in talking to my fellow chief residents, some of whom are going into community general surgery after this uh, fellowship, I'm sure that you'll ask them the exact same question and they'll probably have a little bit more of a realistic answer because this is what they're doing in just five months. But, you know, I think that we are prepared very well to do broad, simple general surgery without any question, and even some more complicated things and complicated decision-making with minimal supervision from senior partners once we get out into practice. Nicole, do you have any words of wisdom for us junior residents who are going to be coming into our own 
as chief residents in the semi-near future in terms of either managing a team or talking people through cases? What would some of your pearls be for yeah. us? You know, I think that the one phrase that uh, I can't remember what chief resident of mine said to me at some point, but it was not, it's that practice makes permanent, not practice makes perfect. Perfect practice makes perfect. And I think of that as something that applies across all all facets of surgery. You know, it's your communication. It's your taking responsibility for your patients. It's your technical skills. It's your, you know, ability to, it's your decision-making and knowledge base. Uh, you have to be intentional and dedicated and focused on uh, doing it well every single time because otherwise you develop really bad habits that do become permanent. And if you want good habits, you need to do it well every single time. And, you know, that kind of intense focus and intentionality in mindfulness in practice can be really difficult to achieve sometimes. Um, but I think that, you know, it's well worth it and that, you know, it's how you become a great technical surgeon. It's how you become a good, compassionate physician. It's how you become a great team leader. Well, thank you very much for all of your words of wisdom. We always appreciate having you on the program. Thanks, guys. This is really fun. And we thank Nicole for her words of wisdom there. You know, one of the cohesive themes that I think I have heard from everybody is that you have to be a good communicator to be a good chief. And you have to, even when you're supervising your junior residents and interns, you have to be kind of on top of everything that's happening and also take responsibility for everything that happens on your team because you are the boss. I think that's a really important lesson to learn and something that I've respected in the chiefs that I've worked with. Well, with that, we have very excitingly a medical student question for the podcast from Natalie, who writes to us, Hey, y'all, I love the podcast. It's my go-to on long drives. Thank you. Now that Pathoma and Goljohn lectures are behind me. They're bringing up bad memories. <laughs> I'm midway through MS3 and I'm 100% sold on surgery, which is very exciting to us. I'm trying to figure out my away rotations and personal statement. Thanks for the inspiration, Jason. <laughs> I still can't believe we did that. <clears throat> no hard feelings, Natalie. You must be a <laughs> hockey player. And wanted to ask y'all's thoughts on them. Are there any major pitfalls or advice to give? Well, Jason, tell us your expertise on this, I remember, since I didn't do any. I remember this was somewhat of a controversial topic at my institution. And so if you asked around the other medical students in my class, if, if, the, if the subspecialty that you were interested in going into did not require weight rotations, and some of them do, like dermatology, some of the subspecialty surgical fields, they pretty much expect you to do an away rotation or two. I think orthopedics was like that. Mm -hmm. General surgery is not like that, although it's somewhat going in that direction. And so because of that, there is a lot of people who felt that if it's not required, you're only going to hurt yourself by doing it. And that just seemed really surprising to me. I mean, it's an awesome opportunity, A, to go and see how different institutions practice, which will help you better figure out what kind of program you're looking for when it comes to your training. But also, it's a chance to 
go away for a month and be outside your your the city you lived in for four years and just get a different flavor and a different experience. So that there seem to be a ton of advantages. I can understand what people are saying when you're only going to hurt yourself by going somewhere because it's a month long. You're the new person in town. You're not going to know the system as well as someone who's been there for three years. But that said, I think the idea was that more so it was your personality that was going to conflict with other people. And my view to that was if my personality is going to conflict with people that much that they would not want to rank me, then that's probably a good sign and that I wouldn't want to match there for five or seven years. And so I talked to uh, our chair of surgery about this when I was a medical student, and he said it depends on what your purpose of going to do an away rotation is. If your reason for doing an away rotation is just to say, I want to go somewhere fun and, and try and be on the beach for a month, uh, then there, you're not going to do yourself any favors. But if you're going somewhere because you want to get new experiences, you want to see how different practices or how medicine is practiced differently at different institutions, and that's absolutely beneficial to your education in addition to being an opportunity to essentially do a month-long interview. So I did two away rotations. I actually did one here at University of Colorado uh, at our academic hospital. And then I did one uh, in Atlanta at the county hospital. And those were two very different experiences. And I think that's something that I would strongly advise is try and find away rotations that, A, add something to your medical experience that you wouldn't obtain otherwise, and B, that they're, they're somewhat contrasting to each other either they're in very different regions or they're very different settings because for one that's again going to help you crystallize what you're looking for in a program but two it's going to give you more experiences to discuss on your interviews that demonstrate why you want to be a surgeon and so if you can say well at this institution i really enjoyed the coordinated care experience where you're doing advanced laparoscopic cases and i also really enjoyed when i went to this trauma hospital and we're doing 24-hour call and seeing these incredible traumas coming in and having to think on their feet, that's going to put you at another level of the, uh, over applicants who haven't done those experiences and always stayed in their own institutions. But then let me ask you this question, Jason. How did you decide where to go, where to apply for your away rotations? Did you have mentors who said, I think that these places seem like something you'd be interested in? I think that this place has a strong medical student what am I trying to say? Like they're, they're strongly advocates for medical students or they're good. Mm -hmm. There's good teaching there. Uh, how did you choose where to go? Cause they're expensive too. Right. So you have to be selective. So I partly chose Denver because I do have family here. Uh, I have, uh, my grandpa lives here. I have lots of aunts and uncles. And so that was certainly going to be helpful in settling in and having that support system, which is incredibly important when you're trying to only live somewhere for a month. Uh, Cause it is hard to settle in and uh, make the most of it without any kind of support system. Uh, but I tried to find uh, places that really added to my experience. So where I went to medical school, it was very much your standard tertiary state academic center. It was not a large referral center for a regional network. It didn't have necessarily the very advanced type cases. Uh, and so I knew that University of Colorado was known more as an institution that was going to have people coming from all over to, to seek out faculty for their expertise and then when it came to choosing my other rotation, uh, I really wanted that urban county experience. And so I'd identified five or six that I applied for. And the one I ended up in, I think I just took the first two that offered me a spot because it's just a month long. And so that's kind of where I ended up and uh, very much fulfilled my hopes for what I wanted to add to my medical education. One of the things, and I hope I'm not giving away too much inside information, Dr. Naylor, but one of the things that Dr. Naylor said to us when we interviewed him about advice for applying for general surgery residency is that there's 
like an hour in the rank meeting where they specifically talk about the people who rotated at the University of Colorado because they know you better. So it sounds like it's very advantageous if you're a good student that they spend extra time talking about you because you spent extra time coming here to make an impression on people. But again, not required. Um, I did fine without doing them. Absolutely. All right. Thanks, Natalie. Thanks for your question. And if you guys have any additional questions, please feel free to either check us out on Twitter at RMSPod. Is that right, Jason? Mm -hmm. Excellent. (laughs) Or you can email us at rmspodcast at outlook.com. Thanks for listening in. Thanks, guys.